Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 22 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, July the 13th. First, I'll be talking to Phil Hodgson, Managing Director of Calix, a materials sciences company that's developing products to solve global challenges in areas like renewables, food production and aquaculture. He'll also be talking about the government grants Calix has received for boosting its world-first innovations. And then I talked to RMIT professor and economist Sinclair Davidson about the government's business tax cuts. How are they going to get through the Senate? And do we need them? But first, let's talk to Phil Hodgson. Phil Hodgson, tell us about Calix, uh, the multi-award-winning Australian technology company. Yeah, sure, Leon. Uh, Calix at its core, I guess, is uh, a material science company. We've got 30 staff, um, all highly passionate. They own about 25% of the stock in the company. Uh, and we're about exploiting a great Australian technology. Our technology is focused around developing new materials. Um, and those new materials uh, we're hoping will solve some of the world's global challenges. Um, and so I guess that uh, that explains why uh, we're quite passionate about what it is we do. The technology itself is uh, a simple process, ostensibly, uh, 
what we do is we take uh, materials that are, that are very tiny. We grind them up into a very small size. Uh, we heat them up in a special reactor. And most materials have little bits of gas inside, inside them. And what we try and do is we heat them up just right so that the gas bubbles out of those materials and forms a highly porous structure. Uh, and that really highly porous structure is what we're after. Um, what that does is create some very interesting properties of materials. Um, for example, in a, in a battery, a lithium-ion battery in your phone, uh, you can imagine the lithium ions have to get in and out of what's called the anode and the cathode. Now, if we can make the progress or pathway for those lithium ions easier, we could have faster charging batteries that, that perhaps hold more charge for a longer period of time. And, of course, when it comes to electric vehicles uh, and the growth that we see in that sector, these material properties are really important for, for the future uh, of those types of technologies. So that, that's one aspect of, I guess, what the technology does. The other aspect is that as this gas bubbles out of these particles, we can capture it directly. Uh, and why is that important? Well, uh, when you're processing stuff like limestone, uh, which, uh, by the way, half the weight of limestone is trapped CO2, uh, what our process does is enable you to process that limestone and capture the CO2. Uh, now, why is that important? Well, uh, limestone is the precursor for the cement and lime industries and the largest industrial emitter of CO2 globally. So our technology is like two sides to the same technology coin. One side, we're producing some really interesting materials with, with very porous and high surface area structures. And the other side is we can capture the gases as we produce it, which is important for industries such as the cement and lime industry. I believe you actually built a, uh, a world-first patent kilt out at uh, Bacchus Marsh. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So sleepy Bacchus Marsh in Victoria there. Uh, if you're driving past uh, and you happen to look sort of northward towards the northern end, uh, there's a 40-metre there's a high tower there, and, and that's us. Uh, what we're doing there uh, at commercial scale uh, is starting to produce some of these interesting materials for, for waste, the wastewater industry, uh, for aquaculture uh, and for agriculture. Uh, and so these materials are, uh, are proving to be quite unique in, in helping solve some of the problems associated with pollutants in, in agriculture and aquaculture and also helping uh, solve some of the issues associated with crop protection in agriculture. So lots of different applications for these interesting little particles. I'd imagine that would be quite important out in that area because it would help improve food production in, in a place like back Bacchus March. Yeah, look, Bacchus Marsh is, is renowned as a bit of a food bowl for Melbourne. Um, we're, we're in the process of commercialising our agricultural products, so we're not, we're not quite selling to the locals yet, uh, but we're in the probably the last stages of our APVMA approvals process or the Australian certification process to sell as a crop protection product. Uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll have some uh, neighbours who are also customers uh, in the next year or two. You have been supported through Aus Industry, haven't you, and uh, the Commercialisation Australia grant and the Austrade Export Market Development grant. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. No, Leon. I think I think it's important to note. You know, that there's there's a little bit of government bashing that that tends to take place both sides of politics around Australian innovation. Uh, I've got to say that Aus Industry, as a department within the Australian government, uh, has been extremely supportive of innovation over many years through the R&D rebate scheme, 
through commercialisation Australia and then accelerating commercialisation and also through the Australian Export Market Development Grant. Um, and as a company, uh, Calix wouldn't have survived without that support. Uh, the markets in Australia uh, are really simply too small uh, and the corporate environment here is, is either A, too conservative or B, uh, most uh, other corporates are subsidiaries of major corporates who do, who do their R&D overseas. So for Australian innovation to thrive, uh, we certainly need um, the support of uh, departments like Oz Industry, and they have been very supportive. It's been a, a, an excellent uh, program. I, I'd imagine that would be quite a challenge for a startup like yourself. It is indeed. Um, you know, the uh, uh, when 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 a lot of your business uh, is several years away uh, in terms of revenue, uh, but you have a great idea. Um, you know, things like all industry is typically how uh, startups get funded overseas. Uh, unfortunately, in Australia, uh, there's not a great venture capital industry. And so, yes, it's very important that uh, the Australian government um, steps in to help uh, companies like ours uh, before revenues are earned. You have lots and lots of ideas. How do you actually stay so innovative? What are your processes? Yeah, look, I guess we see the company as, as a bit of a development pipeline. What we do is we split the company up into, uh, well, we've actually commercialised some products now, which, which is great. So there's a revenue earning section of the company sitting under a sales uh, uh, part of the sales division. Uh, we have a business development division and they're focused on basically the commercialisation and, and, and I guess, playpenning business models and these sorts of things. And then, of course, then we have the R&D and development part of the business, which is about taking our technology, which can be applied in so many different areas, and, and putting it through some filters like uh, what, what's really the global demand for, for a particular as, uh, application of the technology? Is, is there going to be good margin there? Is, is there going to be a disruptive, you know, reasonably quick earner for us? Uh, and, and then how do we develop it? You know, which, which grants or overseas or collaborations should we be looking at? So we, we sort of run a bit of a, a pipeline company, uh, given we've got a platform technology with, with lots of ideas feeding the front end, uh, and already we've had some stuff starting to come out, what I call the back end, which, which is really where we're rubbers hitting the road in sales and revenue growth. Now, Australia is a very small market. Are you looking at expanding overseas and taking your innovations overseas? Oh, look, ab absolutely. Um, in fact, you know, through support... Um, of the Export Market Development Grant, for example. Uh, we, we, we do a lot of our work overseas. Uh, now, when I say work, um, it's interesting. A lot of people think about R&D as, well, let's do it all in the lab uh, locally, uh, then let's start to, to sort of pre-commercial and commercial activities and then, and then uh, start to then obviously have a look overseas with products that you may have developed. I guess we look at the reverse way. Uh, we look at R&D as a chance to collaborate internationally uh, and we uh, collaborate as much as possible internationally. There's some, you know, in addition to the Australian grant schemes, there's some very, very good schemes overseas, especially in Europe. Uh, and we've been quite successful in networking in that area. Uh, so our R&D process is, is almost global. Uh, and then our commercialisation project uh, process is actually quite local. Uh, we like to playpen the business models in Australia, uh, perhaps then do a, 
uh, a bit of a market entry test to New Zealand. And then our aim is, uh, over the course of the next 12 months, let's, let's take our commercialised bits of the business and have a look at the US markets or the European markets, etc. And that would, be, that would be quite a massive uh, increase for you uh, if you take it to a market like the US. Absolutely. Uh, There's risks, of course, in in expanding overseas, but, um, you know, know, a proper risk assessment, in our view, is about playpenning the business model uh, in Australia. And as long as we can can get the metrics around the growth and the the way the business model uh, works for both ourselves and, and people who are collaborating with us, that gives us the confidence to approach markets like the US and Europe, which, you know, as we all know, are much, much larger than Australia and offer lots of opportunity, uh, upside opportunity for, for export growth. Now, as a startup, uh, and you said Australia's quite a conservative market, do you have issues finding the right people? Uh, finding the right people to work for us? Uh, no. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, no. The, the, we, we, um, it's interesting. Uh, as I say, we're, we're, we're a small group of people. We're, we're quite passionate. Uh, we're all owners in the company. Um, and I think Australia has a culture of innovation. Um, so, so we actually, uh, you know, for, as an example, we, we, we advertised for, for a new engineering position uh, about 18 months ago. And I think we had over 300 applicants. Um, and that says two things. A, I, I think we've got a good value proposition for people who want to work for us. But B, you know, unfortunately, there, there's a bit of a sorry reverse trend happening uh, in uh, Australian manufacturing expertise and, and engineering, uh, particularly uh, process engineering and, and these sorts of disciplines are disappearing from the landscape a little bit. So uh, I like to think of ourselves as, as a as I guess a, ma- a little manufacturing innovation startup that, that's bucking the trend of manufacturing in Australia, and, and uh, we don't have any problem um, seeking getting the best people to work for us. Well, Phil Hodgson, it's been fantastic talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Not a problem. Thank you, Leo. And now let's talk to economist Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, what is the status with the business tax cuts? The government has put them on hold until August. It's having a lot of trouble convincing the crossbench to support them. And the Labor Party has now decided not to repeal some of them <laughs> have been, that have been already been legislated. Uh, what's your view about where we're heading? Well, I, I think we're in a great state of confusion at the moment because the tax cuts are on again, off again, on again, off again. Um, and I, th- I think last week's intervention by Mr Shorten where he said they would be repealing tax cuts uh, was incredibly unpopular, even amongst his own party. And so he had to backflip on on uh, Friday. Um, and, of course, it, it wasn't a backflip. It was him listening very carefully to the community, um, telling him that, that they, they preferred these tax cuts and what have you. But I, I think the far more interesting game is what's happening on the crossbench, as you say, um, Mrs. Hansen, um, who more or less has the two votes which the government needs to pass its tax cuts, um, also has been flip-flopping on again, off again. And uh, she, she had a, a, an opinion piece in the Australian newspaper basically saying that she will not be supporting them uh, for two reasons. The first reason is that uh, she, she feels that big business has lost its social license, so to speak. She doesn't quite use the word social license, but, but that's her argument. And the other argument that she uses, which is actually quite economically responsible, is the government haven't articulated where they're going to make up the revenue. Now, 
I, I think obviously Mrs. Hansen has got a good economic advisor at the moment because that is actually a, a much better argument than the arguments that we have been hearing around we want to punish business because we don't like what they've been doing. So that's quite sensible. Um, I suspect come August, though, she probably will be voting for the tax cuts. Uh, well, that will be after the Longman by-election, won't it? Yes. So at the end of this month, there are five by-elections. Uh, four of the by-elections are currently in Labour held seat, and the fifth by-election is in a seat held by an independent who more often than not votes with the Labour Party. So this is actually a mini-referendum, more or less, on uh, the government's uh, economic plans and economic management. And you would have seen over the weekend that the One Nation Party will be preferencing the Liberal Party at uh, at these by-elections. And I think tax cuts are unpopular with Mrs. Hansen's supporter base. And so I suspect the strategy is along these lines. Uh, they'll be off until the by-elections. We will collect the preference flows. We might win one or two seats off the opposition. And then after the election, Mrs. Hansen will be convinced and vote for the tax cuts, depending upon the outcomes. So right now, she has bought herself an option to wait and see. And the government has more or less bought itself an option to wait and see what's going to happen. So I think strategically it's probably a good thing to have done. Um, But, of course, economically, uh, these sorts of political silly games, of course, are are not good for the economy. Well, the issue, the fundamental issue is this this will entail a big hit to the government's revenues. And... How is the government going to make up for the shortfall? Now, the standard argument is that tax cuts to business will encourage business to invest and uh, make more business, which will increase tax revenues. Certainly that is the argument over time, and that was the argument which the current opposition was making when they were in government to justify their tax cuts at the time. Um, So the current government are making a combination of arguments, more or less that particular argument. Other arguments that they are making revolve around integrity measures. Um, So, for example, from the first of this month, the the GST is now set to apply on online purchases made offshore. Now, that is not an integrity measure. That is not an application of the GST. That's actually a whole new tax, which they've introduced as, as an integrity measure, just an extension of the GST, of course. Um, but uh, I, I think serious people don't believe that argument. Um, the, the other argument, of course, is that they are clamping down on multinational corporations. So the, the government's argument is uh, integrity measures and uh, controlled spending and long-term economic prosperity will actually pay for this company tax cut. Right now, Mrs. Hansen is suggesting she doesn't quite believe that story. She also wants changes made to the Australians' gas taxes uh, for for, for export purposes. So that's the government's argument. Um, How plausible it is is open to debate. Um, I'm not convinced that some of these integrity measures will raise much revenue. But that's the story. Nonetheless, it does leave a big hole. In, in the short term, it certainly does. And the argument the, the, the government has around that is they've already factored those tax cuts into their, their, their forecasted budgets. Um, now, to, to be perfectly honest here, Treasury has an horrific uh, track record of forecasting company tax revenue. So I, I, I wouldn't be confident at all about this. So we're kind of left in the position of having to trade off, do we want responsible fiscal 
management of the economy or are we going to roll the dice and go with tax cuts? And I think the government are doing the let's roll the dice and go with tax cuts kind of argument. Now, in the grand scheme of things, would it really matter that much? Well, society as we know it is not going to collapse. But nonetheless, uh, for for those of us who would like to see the budget return to surplus before tax cuts coming in, um, I I think you'd be a bit more cautious. The government's projection is that the budget would return to surplus in 2020-21? That's correct. Uh, However, it is if it does introduce tax cuts, if it does get it through the crossbench, uh, we will have a big hole in revenue. And what, what impact will that have on the surplus? And what impact will that have on the government's projections of the budget returning to surplus in 2020-21? Well, assuming everything goes to plan, which, of course, nothing can ever go wrong in any of these plans, but <laughs> let's assume everything goes to plan. The government should return to surplus in 21-22. The, the cost of, 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 of a reduced surplus, though, because the, 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 these tax cuts will reduce the amount of income coming into Treasury, is that our government debt will hang around for much longer because debt can only be paid out of surpluses or the sale of assets. Now, the government more or less doesn't really have many assets that it can sell, and it certainly doesn't want to sell the assets that it does have. So that puts us in a position whereby government debt is going to last for a lot longer. Um, That's also, uh, I think, one of the things Mrs. Hansen is concerned about is high levels of of debt. Now, she's talking about private debt, but of course, public debt is the far more serious problem. So people who are sort of been scaremongering the last while about high levels of debt in the global economy are actually concerned that there will be a downturn in the global economy fairly soon. Now, if that happens, our budget is in deficit already. Our surplus, we, we, we don't have much capacity to borrow more money. Our interest rates are at very low levels already. So the, the ability of Australia to weather a global financial crisis like we had 10 years ago right now is severely compromised which is, of course, why we should have been taking far more active steps to return to surplus in 2013 and not now in 2018 or even 2021, 22, which is what the government is really talking about. And the matter is complicated by the fact that, unlike Australia, interest rates are rising around the world. They are rising around the world, yes. And, and of course, our, our, our tax rates, our company tax rates are uncompetitive around the world as well. So we're not actually in a good position at all if something goes wrong. Now, of course, um, that's not to suggest that something will go wrong, but certainly uh, a lot of people are becoming quite apprehensive about the near economic future. In other words, these business tax cuts are a gamble. They are. We are certainly rolling the dice. And, of course, um, all going well, we will roll the dice and everything will be fine. And that's the fine Australian tradition. She'll be fine, mate. Um, But uh, I, I certainly think that um, some caution and some full discussion should be had, and the let's punish business discussion is not a helpful discussion. I think uh, if, if more people would discuss about debt and deficit and opportunities and buying down public debt and being able to weather future economic storms, that's a far more uh, economically responsible discussion than we just think business have lost their social licence. And what's needed are policies to actually bring down that debt. Yes, 
Yes, bring down the debt. Um, and that, that does actually perhaps mean selling some assets. Uh, um, one thing I would certainly like to see is a return to the debt ceiling, which was repealed by the Abbott government when it came to office in 2013 with the assistance of the Greens. Um, I, I certainly think having a debt ceiling is a good idea because that puts public debt f- in the front of the of the public mind because after all we have to pay back that debt it's not the government paying back the debt it's us through the tax system will have to pay back that debt in future and so a return to a debt ceiling is would be a sound policy right and any other measures to reduce debt uh, cutting spending, of course, uh, that's always true. We have just announced massive expenditure on on frigates uh, from from our old friend, the United Kingdom. Now, I don't know if we really do or don't need frigates, but it certainly seemed to me just a couple of years ago we were buying massive submarines, uh, spending a lot of money. So, and now all of a sudden we're spending frigates, and all these submarines and frigates are going to be manufactured in South Australia. I suspect in a marginal seat, uh, which is uh, – look, they have to be built somewhere. I'm, I'm happy to accept that. But it does seem the timing of, of, of these expenditures are, are, are unnecessary and, and, and probably um, opportunistic. And one could say that the timing of these expenditures and the timing of these tax cuts are politically opportunistic. Well, I think tax cuts are always uh, politically opportunistic. But uh, I, I think this level of spending is, 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 is certainly – Probably something we can't really afford quite right now. We should be, we, we, we should be looking at, at a time when the budget is in deficit. We should be looking very carefully at every single penny the government is spending, and I think frigates or a whole new fleet of frigates is probably something that, that we, we we can put off for a while. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So, what's happening in the news? Well, Britain's Brexit plans have been thrown into disarray with the resignation of Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson becoming the third minister in 24 hours to walk out of the government rather than back to Theresa May's plans for a soft Brexit. Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt has been named as the new Foreign Secretary. The Prime Minister hammered out a compromise with her deeply divided cabinet in an all-day meeting at Chequers on Friday. Ministers signed off on a blueprint for a new UK-EU free trade area with interwoven customs regimes and identical regulations for ag- industrial and agri-food goods. Critics in May's Conservative Party said the plan would bind Britain to EU rules and prevent it from signing trade deals with countries outside the bloc. But after consulting friends and allies since, Johnson decided he could not promote the deal. Johnson had complained about how crucial decisions had been postponed, leading to what he described as a semi-Brexit, with Britain unable to diverge or move away from rules and regulations set in Brussels. A particular concern to Mr Johnson was a situation where Britain had to wait for the EU to pass laws. I don't see how that country can truly be called independent, he said. In that respect, we are truly headed for the status of colony, and many will struggle to see the economic or political advantages of that particular arrangement. After the Chequers summit, it emerged that Johnson had referred to attempts to sell the Prime Minister's Brexit plan as polishing a turd. His resignation follows that of the Brexit Secretary, David Davis, and his number two at the Department for Exiting the EU, Steve Baker. Less than nine months remain until Britain leaves the bloc on March 29, 2019, and the EU has warned Britain repeatedly that time is running out to seal a divorce deal. Though the resignations could give May the chance to install a Brexit team that's more attuned to business concerns, the prospect of challenges to her leadership adds a degree of uncertainty that makes it hard for companies to plan investments. 
In a sign of the fallout, investment from abroad in Britain's financial services firms fell 26% last year, according to EY. During the same period, Germany experienced a 64% increase, while the figure for France more than doubled. And the United States has listed the $200 billion in Chinese export goods that could be hit with tariffs of 10% as soon as September, escalating the trade war between the world's two largest economies. President Donald Trump vowed to hit back after China retaliated for the first round of 25% tariffs on $34 billion worth of imports that Washington imposed last week. The latest list of goods to face 10% punitive duties includes frozen meats, a long list of live and fresh fish and seafood, butter, onions, garlic and other vegetables, fruits, nuts, metals and a massive list of chemicals. The United States Trade Representative Office will hold hearings on the targeted products and an administration official said it would take up to two months to finalise the list, at which point Trump would decide whether to go ahead with the tariffs. And to Australia, and business conditions have edged up slightly, rising one point in the month to 15 index points after a slight easing in May, according to the National Australia Bank's monthly business survey. However, the retail sector remains noticeably weaker than other industries reflecting ongoing structural issues facing the sector, such as increased competition from overseas entrants and online sales. Retail prices were unchanged in the month. At the same time, there was a pick-up in conditions in manufacturing, construction, finance, business and property services. Business confidence slipped one point to six, close to the long-run average level. While there was a pick-up in the trading and profitability indexes, wages growth remains weak. And James Packer, has resigned from the board of his private family group, Consolidated Press Holdings. According to a notice lodged with the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, Mr Packer stepped down from the CPH board on June 27th as he winds back his involvement with business to focus on his mental health. A Consolidated Press Holdings spokesperson told the media that the billionaire had left within the last fortnight as he, quote, continues his recovery. CPH, the Packer family's primary business vehicle holds a 47% stake in Crown Resorts, worth $4.4 billion. Mr Packer resigned from the Crown Board in March, citing mental health problems that had plagued him as a younger businessman after the collapse of OneTel. He checked himself into a psychiatric hospital in Boston after that. Mr Packer had rejoined the Crown Board to build a closer focus on the business after it had abandoned a decade-long overseas expansion strategy following the rest of its Chinese team in 2016, coinciding with his engagement to and subsequent split from American singer Mariah Carey. Mr Packer had also been implicated, without any allegations of wrongdoing, in the investigation of bribery allegations against Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Mr Packer is not seen in Sydney these days, and according to corporate filings, his personal residence is in Aspen, Colorado. Mr Packer's departure leaves CPH and Crown in the hands of two of his associates, CPH Chief Executive Guy Jalland and Crown Executive Chairman John Alexander. And the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission says households could save up to $415 a year on power bills if there was competition in the electricity sector. The ACCC outlined changes in its final electricity pricing inquiry report and made 56 recommendations detailing ways to fix the national electricity market. The changes could also see Australia's 2.2 million small to medium businesses saving an average of 24% on their electricity bills. ACCC Chairman Rod Sims says Australia's electricity market is broken and needs to be fixed. 
the ACCC has recommended changes, including a new default offer consistent across all retailers set at a price determined by the Australian Energy Regulator, limiting companies to 20% or more market share from acquiring more generation capacity, and a crackdown on comparison websites so that offers are recommended on the best outcome for the customer and not the commission paid. And insurers are refusing to cover big banks and other financial services companies hit by legal action related to the Hain Royal Commission after revelations of misconduct and illegal action. The loss-making directors and officers insurance sector, which covers directors, executives and employers involved in the management of a company, has over the past six months lifted premiums by 70% on average and up to 400% as it sees its profits sliced by an increase in class actions a key cost it covers for Australian public companies. Private equity-backed bootmaker RM Williams will open stores in China later this year as its owners, L. Catterton Asia, look to capitalise on the fastest-growing consumer market in the world and its love of Australian brands. The Bush clothing outfitter has had a rocky few years and fell into the red after embarking on ambitious growth plans under its new owner, but after a challenging period, RM Williams appears to be bouncing back Losses are narrowing as it benefits from a $75 million investment in store fit-outs, expansion of its manufacturing capacity in Adelaide, and a revamping of the brand and its packaging. It's even considering opening a second factory to boost production. And Harvey Norman's disastrous foray into dairy farming is coming to an end, with agency elders appointed to sell the entire Kumbuna Dairies operation in Victoria. Harvey Norman founder Jerry Harvey ploughed money into the 2,000 hectare Kumbuna Holsteins operation northwest of Shepparton in Victoria and wanted to increase the carrying capacity of cows to as much as 6,000. However, the farming business made a $793,000 loss in its first year of operation and was placed into its receivership and administration in March this year, sparking an irate response from shareholders and governance experts. Harvey Norman owns a $73.15 million debt in the dairy operation after also taking on Kumbuna's debt to NAB of $36.06 million in May. And Village Roadshow announced a $51 million equity capital raising to pay down debt as the entertainment group heads for a loss, hit by the impact of the Dreamworld tragedy and lower earnings from film distribution. The 5 for 26 entitlement offer is priced at $1.65 per share, a 24.3% discount to the closing price last Friday. Combined with the sale of Wet n Wild Sydney to Parks Reunidos, one of the world's leading leisure park operators based in Spain, the net proceedings of $87 million will be used to reduce borrowings. And finally, the Commonwealth Bank will pay a total of $25 million in fines, penalties and community benefits after formally accepting an enforceable undertaking with a corporate regulator in relation to its role in setting the bank bill swap rate, a key market benchmark used to surprise hundreds of billions of loans in securities. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission announced the bank had accepted the undertaking as its multi-year pursuit of the big four banks over their role in setting the BBSW draws to a close. And that's it for this week. Next week, we have a terrific interview with Doran Peleg, the CEO of RiskWise Property Services. And he'll be talking to us all about what startups need to know as they get set up and compete with corporates. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBOZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 